Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air, and um, I hope for all of you that uh, February has started off on the right track. Hard to believe we've already um, have entered the uh, second month of 2021, but I certainly do hope that for all of you that uh, January uh, was a good month, and I certainly hope that uh, not just February, but uh, the rest of 2021 would certainly be uh, better than, say, last year. Um, but it's good to be back on the air, and we're um, now going to be discussing the final um, piece to uh, Peter L. Bernstein's Wedding of the Waters, the Erie Canal, and the Making of a Great Nation. So uh, we're going to um, pick back up where we were not able to finish uh, from the previous podcast. And from the previous podcast, we discussed how um, cities outside of New York State, for example, like Cleveland and Chicago, evolved as a result of the Erie Canal's uh, presence. But we're going to talk more about the cities um, in New York State that um, are most well-known of cities like Rochester, Buffalo, Syracuse, uh, for example, um, and how those cities... um, skyrocketed or should I say flourished because of the Erie Canal and of course we have mentioned already how some of those cities that I've mentioned have already flourished but I think it's good to uh, really um, hit the uh, high notes on what has not been discussed and truly understand why these cities were essential for um, not just for the Erie Canal to move along in terms of bypassing but how um, certain goods in particular would become the uh, staples for not just the economy of, say, Syracuse and Rochester, but how the goods uh, transported um, either eastward or westward into other, into other um, towns and cities um, or villages, not just in New York State, but into the western uh, territories or what we now know as the states of Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois. So basically, this uh, podcast is the last of uh, The Wedding of the Waters, and it's been a great um, book to to discuss with you all. I hope that all of you have come away um, appreciating just what it took for our our young nation at at the time um, before the canal itself was fully completed in 1825, just the struggle itself, uh, the uphill struggles, and then how with sheer determination and time how the right people in the right place were still able to come together to um, produce a marvel engineering wonder that uh, radically transformed how uh, shipping um, took place beyond the Atlantic Ocean going inland into the heart of the United States via a canal, but how our uh, nation's uh, national security was um, greatly enhanced because of this inland waterway system. So, our first uh, lead-off bonus question for our uh, final podcast on Wedding of the Waters is the following. With population explosions mounting throughout the Northwest Territory, meaning Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and Michigan, Wisconsin, but by this time, most notably, you know, Ohio's already in the Union along with Illinois and uh, Indiana, 
but with the population explosions mounting in these states that were considered once part of the Northwest Territory going into the 1830s and onward, what commodities will transform shipping along the Erie Canal? All right, here's a few to name. Um, grain and flour along with timber and coal. And we're going to talk more about grain towards the end, but all four of these uh, commodities allowed the states of uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois to transport freight directly towards large commercial centers as well as ports like New York City and Boston on the Atlantic coast all the way to European markets. Well, think about this, folks. You know, if you're in, um, in uh, Illinois, most notably in Chicago, you've got that Michigan-Illinois Michigan Canal but you have a way to uh, transport goods eastward into Indiana, because as Lake Michigan not only touches Illinois, it does touch northwest Indiana, so you've got a means of uh, moving goods through Indiana and then all the way um, into Ohio. Uh, you can move uh, by water and uh, rail, especially in Chicago. Then if you, you know, then if you think about, like, you know, Pennsylvania, for example, um, Erie, Pennsylvania, uh, being in the northwest part of the state, or Cleveland, Ohio, and northeast Ohio, both of those uh, cities are surrounded by Lake Erie, so they've got um, Buffalo to go um, going east, and then all the way, um, you know, crisscrossing through Rochester, Albany, or Rochester, Syracuse, Albany, and then if you're going to a a European market overseas, then you go on down to New York City and and your um, sailing uh, to Europe is what um, happens. So the bottom line is all of these goods, not just goods, but they have access to waterway and rail are, are essential, not just essential, but they are um, imperative to have because the only other option there was... Um, and this was in use before the Erie Canal was totally was totally done, or let alone built, was there was a way to transport goods uh, along the Mississippi River. But if that was done, it would have cost about, it would have been about 2,000 2, miles more worth of uh, traveling, and by boat, that is, and then by the time it got to its destination, it, we probably would have been looking at at least another I don't know, maybe 15 days or more, uh, but with the Erie Canal, obviously, the number of days by um, boat is reduced drastically, um, as I mentioned um, early on, how when DeWitt Clinton and his team of surveyors uh, went from east to west in New York State back in 1810, it took about 32 days from Albany to Buffalo, and by the time the canal is completed, it's about a five-day um, voyage. So it's not just a canal presence alone in New York State. Um, as I mentioned from the previous podcast, Chicago, Illinois caught on to that canal mania. They financed the Illinois-Michigan Canal without any federal funding. And as immigrants are coming westward into Ohio and, you know, eventually Indiana, the Erie Canal is um, a great asset for westward expansion um, once um, the canal reaches its uh Western terminus, Buffalo, but the eastern part being Lake Erie, there still is outlets for these people um, 
to uh, be able to populate in new establishments, but also for goods to uh, reach new uh, markets that had not obviously been allowed beforehand because um, prior to the Erie Canal, there was really no way for for goods to uh, be established or let alone be transported to in uh, Midwestern markets. So from um, the farm productivity, what I found uh, to be really um, amazing to know in terms of a statistic is that farm productivity increased more than 30 percent between 1800 and 1840. And a lot of this can be attributed to the Erie Canal's enlargement um, starting in the mid-1830s. The uh, canal was originally 40 feet wide and 4 feet deep when it was officially opened to uh, transportation in 1825, but starting in 1836 and into uh, around the time of the Civil War first breaking out, the canal will eventually go to 70 feet wide with 7 feet deep. So over time, the um, enlargement of the Erie Canal enabled people from western New York to move not only westward into Ohio and Indiana, as well as Illinois, but also to uh, Kentucky and Tennessee, basically the new uh, western frontiers. And to think Kentucky and Tennessee were admitted into the Union first before Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois. So all of this farm productivity is obviously a very, very essential sign of uh, progress. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, grain being an essential commodity, uh, I will uh, talk more about that towards the end and how uh, one city alone in New York became the uh, grain mecca or let alone the grain metropolis and thanks in part to the Erie Canal's, um, what do you call it, um, the Erie Canal's um, ability to um, accommodate um, boats who can um, transport grain uh, at the same time that also means cutting down on uh, less uh, means of uh, individual labor. So our next bonus question is the following. How did manufacturing itself alter the Erie Canal's revenue system? Well, it changed for the better. And, you know, factories, for example, in Albany turned out ironworks, hats to textiles, whereas in Oneida County, outside of Syracuse, there was an expansion in the textile factories where at one point in 1827, uh, there were only 700 people employed in the textile um, industry. But this was to be eclipsed um, by around 1832, where there would be over 2,000 employees working in textile mills. So that's roughly, I believe Mr. Bernstein had said it was probably about nearly 20 um, mills, textile mills, were um, up and running in uh, central New York. So in um, 1827, what's unique also about that year is that the nation's first hardware store opened in New York City. Well, I will tell you this, it wasn't uh, Lowe's or Home Depot or Ace Hardware, but whatever the name of the hardware store was that opened in 1827, I guess it's fair to say that we could refer to it as the Lowe's or the Home Depot or let alone Ace Hardware of its time. Now, I will say this, by 1835, New York State had 13 had 13,667 manufacturing establishments with sales of up to not quite 60 million, but around 59 million. And by 1850, 
manufacturing revenues in the state alone were around $237 million. I'll tell you, if it weren't for this Erie Canal, do you think there would be almost 14,000 manufacturing establishments in New York City, in New York State? Probably not. Do you think that the nation's first hardware store might have opened? Probably not. What about an, an overall expansion in textile factories? Most likely not. So remember, folks, our biggest hurdle in George Washington, and I've mentioned it before, but I'm going to say it again, and I'll probably say it again at the very end of the podcast. George Washington was the first to lay the blueprint foundation for what we needed in order to be a more uh, secure and independent nation, not just politically independent like we had um, declared when separating from England in 1776, but the kind of independence he was wanting, he was advocating, was economic independence. Independence that, uh, while yes, we could still be, we could still trade with other European nations, but have an economic system in play where um, our Western frontiers were uh, secured in the possession of our government, where goods moved. Uh, with at ease, uh, not just from the Atlantic Ocean, but into inland villages, but where our national security um, was taken into consideration so that future generations would know that where they were living was the United States. Because all that territory west of the Appalachians at one point, folks, belonged to England, and then further west you've got... um, You've got some territory in uh, in Spanish, or we call it Spanish territory, like, you know, Texas, um, California, uh, well, Mexico, Mexico, rather, I should say. Um, but the bottom line is we still have a lot of European influence in the United States. So this canal, a canal system in George Washington's mind, would be a great, would be seen as a great way to uh, reduce um economic dependency from overseas, but also um, be able to reach um, places that had that at one time were not even considered uh, doable for waterway, um, inland waterway navigation. So without this Erie Canal, folks, it's fair to say that, um, that our nation's um, prosperity would have taken much longer to have achieved. This canal has totally revolutionized the way we're transporting goods, but how we're getting them to accessible places, but how, but also how jobs are being created. You know, it's one thing to transport goods from point A to point B, but if you don't have stations along the, along the canal's route, then how can uh, a canal system be profitable? In other words, if you're going to ship, um, textile goods, say, from Syracuse to, say, Cleveland, Ohio, you've got to have mills nearby. Otherwise, what's the point in even sending um, textile goods, say, from Syracuse to um, Ohio if you don't have any anybody um, who's, what do you call it, who's um, equipped to uh, make the goods? And if you don't have anybody who's equipped to make the goods, then how can supply and demand levels be met? So as for uh, Rochester, New York, Rochester became a manufacturing hub 
because of the canal's um, communication system. A good example here was of a fellow named Edward Peck. His paper mill uh, prospered due to increase in printers and expanding uh, market for newspapers and books. All right, here we're going to go on to Syracuse, New York. How did the Erie Canal transform Syracuse from being a small village into a key industrial center? Well, I can tell you this much. Um, Syracuse was a very, very small village. But Syracuse doesn't become a city until uh, the Erie Canal is officially open for business. I mean, where it's officially open for business from Albany to Buffalo. And I'll talk more about that here in a moment. But the biggest enterprise that makes Syracuse such a valuable market for transportation, not just for transportation, but for transporting a particular uh, commodity that is easily taken for granted. But at one point in time in civilizations, this commodity was only accessible to the well-to-do. That answer is salt. It turns out that salt itself had been in had been in and around Syracuse, or let alone central New York, since the 1700s. That is the early 18th century. The Erie Canal's opening allowed vast quantities, or let alone tons, of salt to be transported to multiple markets within the United States. The canal itself replaced the nation's needs for relying on salt imports from the Turks Islands, the Cape Verde Islands, as well as Portugal. And prior to uh, the building of the canal, the salt from Syracuse area had moved west by pack mules to Lake Erie, but the canal's presence allowed for greater demands of salt to be transported westward given an increasing supply on pork. And pork and salt, as we all know, go hand in hand. It's one thing to want uh, meat. How are you going to ship meat in these days? We don't have refrigerated um, uh, trucks at this time. It's going to come much later on down the road, especially in the 20th century. But at this point, we don't really have anything um, that we can refrigerate pork with. But the best way to preserve the pork is by um, applying salt. Not just applying salt, but cure, but by means of curing the meat with the salt and then you uh, place it in barrels where it will be transported uh, westward. I, as I mentioned from, a, from the previous podcast, um, in Ohio, their big exporting product was, was pork itself. How, how ironic that in Ohio they were exporting pork, whereas in Syracuse they were exporting salt. I'm sure somewhere halfway, in, halfway uh, as far east as Syracuse and then as far west as Cleveland, someone in between had to benefit from both the salt and the pork. Now, as I said earlier, uh, just a moment ago, that salt was a very valuable commodity that was only accessible to those who could afford it, meaning the higher uh, classes of society, most notably the uh, well-to-do and the upper classes. Uh, my wife and I learned that uh, a while back when we went to Williamsburg, um, it was late last year, that um, 
that not everyone had a smokehouse. I'm not getting off track here, but I should point this out. It's very common to assume that everybody owned a smokehouse. Well, I'm going to have to admit that that's not true. Those who were wealthy could afford a smokehouse where they um, had the means to acquire the salt and preserve um, the ham and the pork, and it would hang at the um, at the top of, of the roof, and it, and it was done that way not just so much to um, to uh, cure the meat, but to also keep um, intruders from breaking in and stealing the meat. And um, and, it, and this was well before the canal itself was constructed. We did learn that there were three places around the world where um, salt was brought into colonial America. One of them was uh, Cheshire, England. The other was in the um, was in the uh, uh, Caribbean. Of course, when I think of the Caribbean and goods, I tend to think of sugar. But believe it or not, salt was in, in the Caribbean. And we also know there was a, a place, we learned that there was a, a city in um, Austria where salt was uh, shipped. So that at one time, um, people, for example, living in Colonial Williamsburg would have had access to salt coming into America or into their uh, port, uh, which would have been the port of Yorktown, but the salt would have been coming from either Cheshire, England, um, the Caribbean, or um, the village in uh, Austria. But once the Erie Canal comes along, and thanks in part because uh, Syrac where Syracuse is located, there are uh, salt mines this, the canal itself will help gradually reduce dependency upon um, relying on foreign nations to transport the salt into um, what we might now say the Northeast, especially for New York State. Now from 1830, starting in 1830, the population of Syracuse tripled Five years after the canal was completed um, in 1830, the population went from 250 to 750 five years later, being in 1835. Salt, as we know, moved in bulk quantities, but it did so at low costs going both east and west. And by 1850, Syracuse's population reaches 22,000. And I think it's fair to say that the population is growing in Syracuse in large part because of the, not just because of the canal, but, but how many jobs have been created because of the salt industry. But it turns out that salt is used for more than just curing pork. It's used in chemicals like soda ash to bicarbonate of soda. So it's good to know that salt can be used for more than just curing pork. It's used for so many other things, and when it's used for other things, guess what? That opens up the door for job creation. Not just job creation that promotes steady employment, but means to ship these goods via canal east and west. So here's another bonus question right here. Given Buffalo was at the Erie, was at the Erie Canal's western terminus, would it become, over time, the number one inland port in the United States? Uh, the answer is yes. This can be attributed to Joseph Dart's invention of the grain elevator in 1842, which forever changed the handling of wheat. We know wheat is a grain, and now that we have this Erie Canal, 
and now that we're transporting so many goods east to west and new markets are, are sprouting up left and right along the western frontiers, or what we referred to as the western frontier, but now states like Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, and eventually uh, Michigan. Uh, Michigan, of course, is in the, admitted to the Union by 1835. Um, but wheat itself is going to be a easily... Um, transportable good. So how did wheat, how was wheat um, transported before the invention of a grain elevator? Well, I think it's a fairly uh, easy example to, that I can give that prior to the grain's elevator existence, laborers, those who were working in the holds of uh, cargo ships, that is the bottoms, the bottom, the very bottom end of the uh, cargo ship where the goods would be uh, transported down to, in this case with the wheat, uh, the laborers had to shovel wheat into barrels. So in other words, they could be spending hours in and hours, hours on and um, probably easily more than two hours at best just um, getting this uh, wheat into its uh, proper hold and you talk about a lot of back-breaking work. I'm sure there were men who didn't mind doing it all but at the same time wouldn't it be fair to say that something better should come along the way to reduce so much back-breaking work. Well, for Joseph Dart his invention had some unique things to it, like for example a steam engine that moved the vertical belt to where buckets were attached. And then once downward, the buckets went into ships, into the ship's hold, meaning the bottom, and scooped up the grain. Once reaching upward, the buckets dropped the grain into the warehouses upon arrival. So basically, these, um, this contraption that Mr. Dart has invented is taking the place of manual labor. Now, some could say that's a loss in, uh, in jobs right there. I'm not sure how many men were, um, transport, were uh, having to shovel the wheat into barrels. I would say definitely probably five or more people at best. But in order to... Um, meet, what do you call it, time um, deadlines, or let alone meet um, faster arrivals, wouldn't it be fair to say that um, having a, 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 an invention like this is revolutionary enough, not just to save on time, but to also um, be able to um, transport greater quantities of wheat to where, um, or grain rather, to where, um, to where uh, vast supplies of, um, of the grain can be placed into boats without having to spend um, multitude, um, a multitude amount of time um, relying on manual labor where um, the costs would be more than, say, um, compared to what Mr. Dart's invention um, ended up saving in the long run. Now, the tonnage of flour and grain coming into Buffalo from the West, a.k.a. Chicago, in the mid-1840s was ten times the volume from the previous decade. It's amazing just how much uh, change has occurred um, 
going from the 1820s onward into the 1840s, all in the, in the name of not just the Erie Canal, but how cities in the Midwest are thriving, most notably Cleveland and Chicago, and then a city in Michigan uh, being Detroit is also thriving. I mean, Detroit is right near Lake Erie. As a matter of fact, it's not too far from a um, too far from a um, a port in um, Ontario called Sarnia. And as a matter of fact, there is a bridge uh, that connects uh, Sarnia, Ontario, to the uh, to the American side, being Detroit. Now, another sign of progress, all in the name with the Erie Canal's uh, presence, would have to be the following: had people's wages that that is their earnings, along with standards of living, had all of this improved upon the towns and cities that people resided along the, that resided in along the Erie Canal. Uh, yes, luxury items, for example, were no longer confined to the upper classes. You know, there was a time when, say, certain um, types of uh, clothing, um, or let alone certain types of uh, fine china, or let alone silver with elaborate ornate decorations, a lot of that stuff was confined to just those who were wealthy. Now we're finding that what was once only um, attainable to um, an elite class of people is now being accessible to people from different classes, all because of what the Erie Canal has provided for. A better way to transport goods, but as a result of an increasing population of people moving to um, towns and villages that will eventually become cities or have already done so, like Syracuse, Albany, Buffalo, Rochester, Cleveland, Detroit, Chicago, all of those cities, because they have populated so well, all of these people can live the American dream. They can enjoy, not only can they enjoy the fruits of their labor, but they can enjoy what has been uh, given to them. It was, it was this stuff that was handed to them? No, they worked for it, but they could prove that they also had the right to attain the same quality, even if it was more luxurious than what they had been accustomed to before, they still had the right to attain it. And I should also say that clothes and furniture were no longer homemade items. While yes, you could still make these items homemade, but they could be purchased in stores. And there again, with the Erie Canal's um, presence, Stores are um, popping up left and right, so that means that that uh, stores have a way of selling goods at a um, at a higher level than previously before, because there's a greater diversity of people, and the more diverse your communities are, the greater the accessibility there is to attain items that once were never um, considered to be doable beforehand. So. Um, I would say by 1855, roughly 32,000 Irish women and freed and freed African Americans were employed as domestic servants in middle-class homes throughout New York City. Now, I should say this: um, I've mentioned before about how Albany was the eastern terminus. While that is true that um, Albany may have been may have been foreseen as the Erie Canal's eastern terminus, it turns out though that Albany 
really served as more of a transshipment um, facility. Well, what does transshipment mean? Think of it as this way. It's like the equivalent of a um, of like a hub terminal for a truck. And I can relate to this because for one, I work in the trucking industry, but two, um, while I have never worked at a uh, shipping or what do you call a freight container station, but after having uh, looked up the term transshipment, I get I have a much better understanding of why Albany during the heyday of the Erie Canal would have been seen more as a trans transshipment facility center. So this is what transshipment means, folks. It's where goods, or I should say freight, often get transferred from one ship to another in reaching the final destination. So in other words, the goods themselves don't stay on one um, piece of equipment, or in this case, one boat. Instead, they will uh, interchange at some point halfway where, say, boats will swap goods with one another. So let's say, for example, a boat is going from uh, Rochester to Albany, or, uh, and um, let's say you have a, a boat that's going from um, Syracuse to, um, to New York uh, City, it's, it's uh, what, what can happen is that, or let alone I should say from, um, from, say, um, from the opposite, the boats can uh, swap uh, with one another and then take their goods to uh, their proper destinations. So in other words, one boat alone may not um, see the need to go all the way from, say, Buffalo to New York City, but if there is a, a stopping point where they can do a freight swap of boats or, or take the freight off of the boat and place it on another, then Albany, New York is the best um, solution for that. And there's another reason why I can also attest to that. If Albany was never truly considered the Erie Canal's eastern terminus, then which city held that distinctive status? Well, the answer is New York City, 150 miles south of Albany, along the Hudson River. And you know what's interesting? Why, why is it that New York City and Albany are important in terms of connecting to one another? Well, wasn't it back in 1807 from an earlier podcast that a man named Robert Fulton invented a steamship uh, known as the Clermont that transported people from um, from New York City along the Hudson up to Albany and back being a 150-mile round trip. But I should say that it's at New York City where waters from Lake Erie made their way down the Hudson River to merge with the Atlantic Ocean. In essence, one would get the following, wetting of the waters. That's why it, New York City um, deserves to hold this distinctive status, because it is at New York City where you get the Erie waters from the Erie Canal, the Hudson River, all trickling down to the Atlantic Ocean, where you get a wetting of the waters. You could say the same for vice versa if, it was going, if a shipment was going from New York City to Buffalo, where you would get the Atlantic Ocean, the Hudson River Valley, and then the Lake Erie. So the bottom line is, no matter what direction you're going, it's a wetting of the waters because all, because the boats don't move on just one body of water, not just ocean. They move on ocean and rivers. 
but they all meet up at some point. Without that, there is no wedding. There is no wedding of the waters. Well, to end this uh, podcast, I'm going to um, touch off on a, a key question. Not that the other questions throughout this book have been key, or let alone this particular podcast session haven't been key. They all have. But, you know, um, two men that really come to my mind who laid the foundations behind this canal, or let alone behind, well, it was DeWitt Clinton that advocated the Erie Canal, George Washington, um, was responsible for getting the Potomac Canal started. But there was something that both of these men emphasized. I've mentioned it quite a bit, but it's so imperative to remember that what they strove for was not forgotten because they were ardent um, Americans, they were ardent patriots, but they firmly believed in America's future. They knew that America had great hopes for doing great things, but the only way it could be done was to build a canal that would link not only the Atlantic Ocean to the inland waterways, but to link east and west. And by doing so, the fate of our nation would remain afloat. It would not be um, a na- it would not be a partial United States. It would be a whole unified United States. So the two men that come to my mind are George Washington and DeWitt Clinton. They both emphasized upon in their quests for linking oceans, being the Atlantic, to inland waterways. National unity and economic power were the driving factors or elements needed to, needed to support one another in ensuring our nation's future wouldn't be hindered. The canal waterway would link the U.S. and Europe via the Atlantic Ocean, but also bind Easterners and Westerners together where the United States remained as one nation solidly unified. Well, so there you have it, folks. Um... George Washington laid the foundation while his Potomac Canal did not succeed. He at least, um, we can say that by the time he died in 1799 at age 67, we can say that he at least gave it his best. He laid a foundation for us, but what he ultimately strove for was to ensure that one day from now somebody else would pick up the the pieces, keep this flame alive and in, in, in hope that um, that one day an inland waterway system would link east and west together to where a United States would still remain afloat. Well, he got his wish. Um, he never met DeWitt Clinton in person, but DeWitt Clinton's father um, knew George Washington in person. So Washington did know the Clinton family, but DeWitt Clinton, if it hadn't been for his leadership, folks, the Erie Canal may never have come into full fruition. So ha- there you have it, folks. A waterway. We're not just talking a 15-mile waterway, although when the canal was com- constructed in sections, there were certain parts of the canal open for transportation, whether it was transporting freight or getting passengers from point A to point B. But a canal that was between 351 and 363 miles linked east to west in ways that we never thought were doable. 
Who would have thought a canal could cut down on the costs of transportation? Who would have thought a canal could have brought immigrants to the New World where they had a, a future? Not just a future with a job, but a future with a home, a future to sell goods, a future to make the American dream an actual reality. Yes, there were people who said DeWitt Clinton's um, goal would amount to nothing. There were those who called it the big ditch. But DeWitt Clinton and countless others before him, we must remember this whole envision of a canal system stretched two and a half centuries from the time Henry, Henry Hudson explored what we now know as the Hudson Valley system in 1609 to Cadwallader Colden's survey of uh, the Mohawk Valley region in 1724 to a period of 25 years from 1792 to 1817 where constant surveys, constant debates, commission studies, all would prevail in the name of building the grandest of um, engineering marvels that the United States saw in its early heydays as a republic. And to know that this invention, this engineering marvel, was all done without federal assistance. It goes to show you that while, yes, your government should help you out, but when the government can't help you, all because of sectional tension, that's where ingenuity has to come from a different angle. And that's what New Yorkers did. And if they hadn't done so, I'm not sure they, that their state would have been called the Empire State. There's a reason why it's called the Empire State. The Erie Canal represents our nation's zenith. It, it represents our nation's um, status as an empire for transportation, for transporting goods east to west from the ocean to the inland waterways, promoting unity, promoting economic security, promoting national security, promoting one nation. And while, yes, there would be a civil war over time, but that Erie Canal, it might be safe to say that Erie Canal alone could have prevented a war from breaking out. It could have prevented a war, um, another war with a European power that was still on our soil. Thank heavens the year before the canal was constructed, James Monroe issued the Monroe Doctrine preventing or let alone outlawing European colonization in the Western Hemisphere. Well, folks, this has been a great uh, journey. I hope all of you have uh, walked away with learning something new about our young nation's history with the Erie Canal. And if those of you who want to learn more about the Erie Canal, there are plenty of websites online. Uh, I also would recommend um, going to um, New York State. I know there's an Erie Canal Museum in Syracuse. My wife and I uh, visited an Erie Canal Museum in Seneca Falls when we visited the Finger Lakes nearly four years ago. Uh, that was very well worth uh, visiting. Um, but for those of you who are interested in canals, then yes, definitely um, go to New York State's uh, website to find out more about um, canals because um, because where the canal is um, positioned in New York State, 
given that it covers 16 counties from Albany to Erie. There are um, numerous trails that you can um, visit. There are uh, canal boat rides you can take. Um, I hope hopefully my wife and I will get back to New York State here in the near future where we can do an Erie Canal boat ride. Well, it's been a great journey, and I look forward to being back on the air again here soon at some point when we um, discuss our next um, podcast series. Take care and stay safe, and um, thank you once again.